Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast. I understand that we got picked up by Stitcher Radio recently, which is frankly a surprise to me because I opted not to sign their agreement a couple of years back when they they came onto the market. Because you see, one of the things that I've been responsible in my work world is contracts. And so I actually read it, and their IP uh, intellectual property clause concerned me. If I remember correctly, basically they reserve the right to take indiscriminate chunks of your content out of the the whole podcast and use them for other purposes. So I guess they decided their contract wasn't all that essential to using my content. <laughs> I guess I could sue them for IP infringement if I was that sort of litigational wanker, which I'm not. On a similar topic, I've managed to cut the tether to the podcast app on my iPhone. It was so dysfunctional. So I use PodCruncher now, which is another app you can download from the App Store for my podcasts. And it even lets you bypass iTunes and go directly to the RSS source. This is useful if you want to listen to people who don't use iTunes to publish their podcasts, like our lovable but slightly paranoid friend Nigel, for instance. But anywho, if you're new, welcome. I'm Chris. And we've got some cool and thought-provoking stuff for you today in our ongoing quest to figure out this world and run some quality miles. Today we talk to Woody Woodburn, who is a sports writer who has recently published an interesting book that explores his relationship with a famous college basketball coach here in the States, John Wooden. John Wooden had a unique philosophy. The coach was very successful molding young people into accomplished athletes and accomplished humans, and he, he simplifies the lessons of life into repeatable habits that lead to success, and Woody and I are going to talk about that. Habits are a very powerful thing. Many of the current life-hacking tactics rely on habit hacking. If you think habits aren't powerful, try putting your wallet in a different pocket or wearing your watch on the other wrist, or talking your partner into sleeping on the other side of the bed. Try that. See what happens. Habits allow us to live life without getting overwhelmed. And when they are wrapped around a life purpose, they're unbeatable. I also talk about the importance of tending to your personal brand in Section 1. And in Section 2, I talk about what to consider when packing for a travel marathon. Like Buddy, the old wonder dog, I too am in the doldrums of running. You might say, now is the winter of my discontent. <laughs> I still haven't recovered from that ankle issue that I caused racing on New Year's Day. And I tested it out too early last week and uh, made it mad. So basically I've been pool running for three weeks. And people say, wow, you must really hate pool running. But, you know, I don't. I find it to be quite peaceful. 
and it's inside out of the elements. And if, if you don't remember, pool running is a way to continue your training without any weight-bearing running. You can go search my blog for it if you want the deep explanation. I've got it wired. I go to the pool late or on off hours so I can have some peace. And I bought an aqua jog belt because the ones at the club were always in disarray if available at all. I fold one of those kid noodles in half and I stuff that up to the back of the belt to get a nice high ride in the water and keep my feet from scuffing on the bottom. And I put my iPhone in a plastic bag and stick it in my swim cap on the top of my head with the headphones run down to my ears. And I can also stick my gym boss up there, the timer, uh, if I'm doing intervals. And then I just spin away, running like a, like a pro in a running motion back and forth in the deep end. And I look like a total tool. But like I said, it's peaceful. I'm probably going down to Waco, Texas with Ryan in a couple of days against coach's orders, and I'm going to attempt that marathon. There's no way I'm going to race. Instead, I'll see what Ryan wants to get done, and I'll pace him to his goal. If I, I think if I go slower and I tape the ankle and wear the hokas, I can come out of it without hurting myself. It looks like I'm going to have to probably let my Boston qualification go for the near future, but I don't want to let my marathon of the month go. It just feels like quitting, even if I've got a bunch of perfectly good excuses. There's parts of my life right now that you don't know about that have been fairly active and may make all of this uh, moot, and uh, that's pulling some bandwidth away from my training and my racing. So a quick story for you before we get on with things. I signed back up with the health club in early January so I could use the pool. And, of course, this coincides with the other hundred jaded housewives and enervated couch potatoes that signed up as New Year's revolutionists at the same time. And the following week, I get a message at home on the answering machine from the fitness director wanting to schedule a meeting so he can help me set the appropriate fitness plan for me. Now, that's funny. I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to get involved in any of my fitness plans. <laughs> Another story while I'm on the topic. I'm in the gym over the weekend doing a leg strength workout, you know, all lunges and squats. And this guy wanders over and sits down and starts watching me. And I'm tuned out on my headphones, but I make some passing comment about being at a, a, a hill strength workout. After a couple of sets, he says to me, you know, you'd get more out of those if you fixed your form. <laughs> Of course, he's right. I'm rushing the sets, but I thought it was pretty funny. So keep those lamps trimmed and burning, my friends. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Let's talk about creating an effective personal brand. So take the time and figure out who you want the world to see. Story. I've been working with my LinkedIn network over the last few months. I was an early adopter when LinkedIn first came out. And in the last year, I've grown my direct professional network to over 4,000 contacts. Now, you may think, so what? Why do I put the effort into establishing a professional profile and attracting and connecting to other professionals in my industry? Well, I see it as a benefit in a couple of ways. First, through my network, I am connected to someone in almost every company in my industry. If I need to hire or recommend or help someone else, I can ask my network. 
Not spammy, not selling to them, but using them as an extended network community to add value. I become the connector. It's the professional form of crowdsourcing, and it's an asset to me. Second, even though your company may think you are wasting your time playing around on social networks when you're supposed to be working, it's a way for you to gather intelligence and triangulate on customers and prospects during engagements. This information can be critical in reading an account or an organization. It allows you to eliminate blind spots in your business-to-business interactions. And third, frankly, it lowers my personal risk. The more connected I am, the less isolated I am. This takes leverage away from circumstance and puts it in your pocket. I'm not looking for a job, but if I was, I'd know 4,000 plus people I could ask for help in my industry. Fourth, these contacts give me an audience in my profession for my ideas. For example, you may create content like a blog or white papers that you want to let people in your industry know about. I have a built-in audience of 4,000 plus professionals in my industry that I can share my value-added content with just by updating my status with a link. And remember, in this digital age, all that content is searchable. It's search engine friendly. This means Google is smart enough to read your blog and rank it for the terms and phrases you use in your profession. Those are the same terms and phrases that your prospects and customers are searching for information on. You can't be found if you don't exist. Fifth, and what I want to talk to you about today, is that this allows me to create my version of my story. It allows me to proactively create and control my narrative. Just like you have a personal side of your life or a spiritual side of your life or a health and fitness side of your life, you have a professional avatar. This is your professional face to your professional world, and the onus is on you to make it work for you. This personal brand creation is at the core of a successful professional network. And the current social media tools provide you with platforms so you can display your strengths and value. I frankly don't understand professionals who won't connect or won't put their professional information online. They're losing a competitive advantage to savvy professionals like you and I. But here's the big difference. I'm not talking about posting your resume or mindlessly filling out your personal information. I'm talking about taking the time to create and tell your professional story. You've done great stuff. You need to build a great story to let your professional world in on the secret. So let's break it down. Each of these online social business platforms will allow you or ask you for a summary. Most people just slam in some weak stuff about their current job. Not you. You're smart. You will spend some effort and introspection figuring out what your strengths are and what you have accomplished and what you aspire to. You will create a compelling narrative around these things, and that will become your summary. That first sentence, that first paragraph will grab the reader by the throat and breathe authentic passion into this conversation. Don't just list stuff. Write compelling narrative. Got it? And continue this thoughtful process into the sections that list your experience and education and other stuff. Don't just list job titles. 
List your accomplishments and your dreams. Make it sing. I'm not talking about making stuff up. There are authentic things for you to say. You don't have to make stuff up. Just answer the question, what were you most proud of in this role? That's the story you tell. Your intent is not to deceive. Your intent is to inspire. Now, most of these platforms want a profile picture. People, for heaven's sake, don't upload the quick selfie from your computer camera. And don't upload that great photo of you in the funny hat from your last holiday. Go put on your business suit, whatever a business suit is in your profession, and have some professional photos taken. At the very least, have that friend, you know the one, the one who thinks they are a photography expert, have them take some good shots with an appropriate background. That's a first impression. Most of these sites also ask you for a website. I won't go into it here, but you should probably consider creating a professional blog and seed it with some intelligently curated posts. Don't link it to your favorite sports team or your Facebook page. Put something useful in that link. Finally, and this is the big extra credit tip for today, most of these sites, like LinkedIn, let you associate a video with your profile. And this is an extremely powerful way to tell your story. So here's what I did. I simply wrote a powerful script entitled, Why I Love What I Do. And I brought it up on the computer screen in front of me and performed it into the laptop camera. It's super powerful and it's authentic. Friends, the tools are out there. Use them to tell your story. Your profile, once created, becomes a powerful differentiator and will create opportunity in your life. With online presence, your professional profile can either help you or hurt you. Look at it as an opportunity. Use it to your advantage. It is a point of leverage. It is a way to influence. And don't wait till you're looking for a job. Keep it fresh. Make it part of your yearly renewal process. By using these methods on LinkedIn, I was able to generate 1,400 views of my profile in the last 90 days. And again, I'm not looking for a job. But I've had a half dozen people or so reach out to me for business opportunities of one thing or another. The real reason you should do this, the real reason your professional profile is so important, is that most other people won't do it. And the question is, will you? And now for today's featured interview. All right, Woody. Hello, Chris. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yourself? I'm doing well myself. Just bought a new hat because it's uh, about six degrees out. Need a new hat. Well, it's about 70 here, I'm sorry to say. It always is in California. You guys don't even need weather forecasters. No, it's we don't. It's the same every day. That's right. It's boring. It's boring. It makes people weak. You need to be strong. I know. I grew up in the Midwest, so I, I remember the seasons, and I do kind of miss the snow sometimes, but only for maybe a week at a time. <laughs> <laughs> it starts to get old now, right? We're all pretty enthusiastic about it through to January, but into February, it gets to be a little dark. And you got to remember that we're only, you know, four to six away, weeks away from seeing uh, light at the end of the tunnel. So yeah, we'll, we'll be there in no time at all. So when you give us the, uh, the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and and then uh, we'll talk about your book. Okay. Well, I'm a sports writer for sports columnist for like 30 years. About 10 years ago, and we'll talk about this later, I got hit by a drunk driver. So I actually left 
sports writing just to become an author and freelance writer. And my new book out is called Wooden and Me, Life Lessons from My Two-Decade Friendship with the Legendary Coach and Humanitarian to Help Make Each Day Your Masterpiece. So that's quite a, quite a long title there, but it's a, it's a quick read of a book, and I know we're going to get into that a little bit later. And I'm also a, a runner, longtime runner, marathoner, and a streaker. So that's kind of the quick synopsis. So why don't you give folks a little bit, I know it's impossible, but just a synopsis on, on Coach and who he was. For those of us who were never in an organized basketball program. I'd say most people, because a lot of younger people really don't even know who Coach Wooden was. He, he was arguably the greatest coach of any sport that we've ever produced. Sporting News named him this coach of the 20th century. He won 10 NC2A titles with UCLA Bruins basketball in a 12-year span. His team's won 88 games in a row. I mean, when you talk about streaks, he's the ultimate streaker. I had the good fortune early in my career, I was pretty much just a rookie in the sports writing business, and I covered one of his talks. He had retired, and afterwards I went up to, to interview him, and I asked him if he could give me five minutes because he had a three-hour drive. He ended up giving me like 45 minutes of one-on-one talk, and I sent him a copy of my column, and about three days later, he writes me back, thanking me very nicely for this column and invited me to join him on his morning walk if I was in town because he used to walk five and a half miles every morning. So I called him that night. I was as nervous as, you know, like when I was in middle school asking a girl out to a dance, and I showed up on his doorstep a couple days later, went for a, a walk with him, and a friendship was born. It's so interesting if if and and then after you had sort of rekindled or kindled this relationship with him, he started to get famous again. He is retired at the time, and he sort of fell out of the lime, limelight. But then he got famous again at the end of his life. That's and, uh, true. I, you know, I think that was one of the good fortunes I had in a way that when I first met him, he just he retired for a little bit. And his his wife Nell, who's married to almost for fifty years, the only girl he ever dated, um, she had passed away just two years earlier, and so he was kind of a, a recluse. He would just started coming out of his out of his home really, and he giving talks and stuff. So he had kind of just kind of disappeared quietly. But then after I met him, you know, he had time for me because he didn't really have anything else going on. And then probably ten years into our relationship, like you said, he got famous again. Every, all these coaches would start coming to visit him and try to soak in his knowledge. And the TV commentators would try to get interviews with him and stuff. And he just became this the guru on top of Mount Basketball, as so to speak. And he was just such a a great talker and lecturer, and he had so much wisdom. And so a lot of people, like you think, like you had to play for him at UCLA maybe to have this relationship with him. And I think that's what's kind of unique about me is that we didn't really have any connection other than that I met him and we just hit it off. People have been telling me I should write this book for a long time. And like with a lot of important things, I kept putting it off. And then when he passed away three years ago, I finally decided, you know, I really need to do this because... He gave me this gift of friendship, and now it's my chance to to share with other people, at least in some small way, what it was really like to to live and learn from this man, this great man. Because really, other than my my father, I don't think anybody else has had a greater influence on my life than Coach Wooden did in his 25 years I knew him. Very interesting, because I had never been really deeply involved or kn- known a lot about Coach Wooden, but I've always heard the name, right? So especially in, in sales situations, people are always co- quoting him oh. or these these nice little aphorisms that he came up with. Um, so, you know, he has this he has this sort of pyramid of success. Over time, he developed a methodology. Right. And this methodology, this pyramid of success, and he defined success as not as, you know, money or anything, but success was 
doing as as well as you can in what you choose to do. And it's almost it's almost synonymous with happiness in that sense or sort of peace, you know, or self self happiness, self peace. So it's it's very interesting how we how we built this methodology. And then, and then people came back and sort of found it and said, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. Right. Exactly. Um, he actually worked on the pyramid for about almost 17 or 18 years when he first he was actually an English teacher back in, in Indiana. And he got upset or not upset, but concerned that, you know, some kids would get a C and their parents would think they were failing. And that was really a great grade for them. And some kids would get an uh, a minus and they should, really should have been getting an A plus. So he just worked on this idea of, of what is really success. And he decided that success is a self-satisfaction that comes from the peace of mind and knowing you did the best that you can do to become the best you are able. And so then from there, he built this pyramid. And one of his sayings he likes to say is good things take time. And the pyramid is, itself is an example of that because it took him, like I said, 17 or 18 years until he, he finally got it just perfect the way he liked it, just down to the last word. And then like he also has these other sayings like um, make friendship a fine art is one of his favorite sayings. And, and yeah, and make make today your masterpiece was right, a good one. Favorite one, but these sayings are more than just sayings because, like, one time I was visiting him, and I was about to leave, and he, he gives me this. He says, "Wait a second, goes to his, his den, comes back with this new book he had just written that came out, and he's always giving me something. I go, Coach, you know, don't give me this. I'll buy this when I get home. I really can't wait to read it, but I'll buy my own copy." And he just kind of smiled and he goes, "Well, I can't really give it to anybody else because I've already signed it to you." And then he just paused for a second. He goes, I'll tell you what, why don't you still go buy another copy and just give it to one of your friends for no reason. And so there was a living example of making friendship a fine art. Yep, taking the time to, to, to work on the important things. And what impressed me about this, like I told you, I read a bunch of books at the same time. So just purely by coincidence, I'm reading this other book on habits. And habits are, you know, they talk about smoking and exercise and good habits and bad habits and alcoholism, right? All these famous examples in marketing and advertising. You know, how do you get people to form habits? But what Coach seemed to do is take these really, really talented kids. I mean, we're talking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton, right? These are famous guys. And he'd take them in, at the college level when they're coming out of high school, and he would break them down to their lowest level, to their simplest habits, and rebuild them up with these habits, like tying your shoe, right? The first day, instead of working on shooting, you're going to work on tying your shoe, that's, right? That's exactly and, right. And it's almost like boot camp, right, where they're teaching people, you know, you have your way, but now you're going to do it our way. Right. But the reason you do that is you, the way success works and the way habits work is you have a, a routine. That routine has a cue, then the routine itself, and then a reward at the end. And that's the cycle. That's the habit cycle. So as you build these habits, you don't have to think about them anymore, right? You have your cue. It automatically kicks in the routine. You get the reward. And the other thing that all that needs is a belief system that those fit into. And he provided all of that with what he brought in this, this methodology, this pyramid, whether he knew it or not. Oh, yeah. It's very scientific, whether he knew it or not. Yeah, he knew it because, he, like you said, he broke everything complicated down into just the barest parts. I mean, his, his All-Americans, they would be practicing jumping and catching an invisible rebound just over and over without even a ball in play to get the fundamentals right. And as you said, the very first day of practice, every single year, even with all Americans like uh, Bill Walton coming back and they're a senior and they've gone through this talk four years in a row, he sits them down the first day of practice, shows them how to put their socks on, 
smooth it out so there's no wrinkles. You hold it tight. You put the shoe on. How to tie the shoe because he didn't want them to get any 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 blisters because if they get a blister from putting the shoe on wrong or they have a wrinkle in their sock, that means they have to come out of the game when it's not their rotation to come out. So that hurts the team. And so everything was just, you know, little things make big things happen is what he liked to say. And it's it's just so true. And so his teams, you know, they weren't thinking out there. They were just reacting because they had habits, as you said. You know, they knew that when they when they had a 10-foot shot from the side, they were supposed to bank it. They didn't think about, should I shoot this straight in or should I bank it? They knew from thousands of hours of practice, oh, it's a bank shot. And and we know how we're supposed to press. This is where we're supposed to be. So everything's a habit. And so when that happens, you know, winning becomes easy. The reason you practice that a thousand times instead of a hundred times is that habits are great, but what the science shows is that your habits work until you're under stress, and then you start to revert to your old behavior because you start thinking about it. So you have to practice the habit, the cue, routine, reward, enough time so that you never have to think about it, no matter what stress there is, right? And exactly. You know, you obviously know this really well because you said stress, and you know they all said that their practices were way more stressful than games. Everything had to be done even quicker in practice, and he would add different stresses, like you said. So if you can do it under stress, when there's less stress, it's just a piece of cake. It's in our real life. You know, if you get a habit and you can do something when you're under stress at work or you're under stress in whatever event, then if you get through that tough time, wow, then it's just really easy when you're in easy times. Right. So, I mean, it's it's a process of simplifying everything down and then building up the right habits. And the other thing the science shows, Woody, and this will be interesting to you, is there's there's people who have habits like bad habits like they don't exercise or or you know they overeat or they smoke until they have a life event until something happens right so it has to take a it has to be a big a big event that knocks them out of that pattern and for you that was a car accident and it knocked you out of your pattern which was a lifelong sports writer into you know a freelance writer and a book writer and a streaker Yes. Actually, like it's, it's a date that I'll never forget. It's an anniversary, kind of like when, when Lance Armstrong got cancer. For me, January 26, 2003 is the day my life changed because I was coming home from the Super Bowl. It was held in San Diego. And I got rear-ended by a drunk driver going 65 miles an hour while I was waiting at a stop sign. And it, uh, I was lucky I wasn't killed. It just totaled my car. I'd have neck disfusion surgery. I still have permanent damage, nerve damage in my left hand, so I can't really type on deadline, I need to take these breaks or else my neck just gets really sore. So I never would have left the sports writing business because I really loved it, but I was like forced to. I left the press boxes and became, you know, freelance writing, working on books. But as coach says, you know, things turn out best for those who make the best of the way things turn out. By leaving sports writing, I was able to not be working every single weekend in a press box covering events. So my daughter played uh, basketball in high school and she wrote plays in college. So I didn't miss a single one of her games or any of her performances. My son ran track and cross country in high school and college. Didn't miss a single one of his events, his meets. If I was still writing, I would have missed a lot of those things. And plus you were able to get into this routine of when you finally were able to walk again, you were able to run again, you were able to get into this routine of running every day. Yeah, because I'd been a runner and a marathoner, but I didn't run every single day. After the injury, I remember one time... I, when I finally could just walk out of the house, my, my daughter and I went to get the mail. And we do not have a very steep steep driveway. But we're coming back up, and I just look at her, and I go, geez, our driveway is so steep. And like I said it seriously, and we both looked at each other, and we just broke up laughing. So about three months after surgery, when the doctor gave me the go-ahead to run one mile on uh, 
July 7th, 2003, I actually ran three, but it, to have running taken away from me, like I always knew I loved to run, but to have it taken away from me and then being able to do it again, I've run every day since then, at least three miles. And that's amazing because a lot of the streakers go with the one-mile rule, right? Yes. But you went with a three-mile rule. Yeah. There's, a, there's actually, a, I found out about this last year, the United States Running Streak Association. There's actually a place that all these great streakers you know, get together online. And it's really amazing because like I just passed 10 years. I'm at 10 and a half years, which is today is my 3,852nd day in a row. When I hit five years, I remember thinking it was amazing. And, and you go in this place and there's eight people that have run for every day for more than 40 years. Like I'm only 150 yeah. on the street list, but it, it's, it's remarkable. There's this whole community out there. And I'd encourage anybody out there who who loves to run to think about joining this and, and their, their bylaws are just run one mile a day continuously. And, and that counts as your streaks. It's, it's really kind of fun. And you talk about habits to me, I think it's easier to run a hundred days in a row than to run 99 days out of a hundred because you've taken the decision out of it. I don't think about if I'm going to run, it's kind of like taking a shower or brushing your teeth or eating breakfast. It's your habits. So you're going to do it. And I, I found this great quote by the, uh, ML Zabatek, the great uh, distance runner, won the 10,000 and 5,000 meters in the Olympics in 52. Yeah, yeah, the Czechoslovakia, yeah. right? And he's, yeah, he used to he used to train with a telephone pole yeah. carrying, carrying a telephone pole in, in army boots. His famous quote was, when a person trains once, nothing happens. When a person forces himself to do a thing 100 times, then he has certainly has developed in more ways than physical. Is it raining? That doesn't matter. Am I tired? That doesn't matter either. The willpower is no longer a problem. And that's kind of how if you make a commitment to streaking or if you make a commitment to anything, if you if you do it enough, it just gets its own momentum. Right. And and, and that way you've got the habit in the other direction, right? You don't have to think about it at all. Exactly. Yeah. But with a three mile a day, you know, I've talked to these guys and you always run into that random event where you're having to run in an airport yeah. or run on a run on a broken leg or, you know, how did how did you and you qualified you you put your fastest marathon time in Actually, in the streak run fast how did you how did you do the quality of training needed without any recovery days you know I, I think that I, I, I've become a lot of people in the, that are fellow streakers I've talked to kind of think this recovery day is kind of a myth because if you when you're running every day you're not running hard every day you know, a three mile run can be pretty easy. It's almost like nothing. If, you, if you're used to running, you know, if you're running 70 miles a week or whatever, I think it's just how hard you run. I mean, when you think back just ancient times or, or prehistoric times, I don't think our hunter and gatherers ate six days and took a day off because they wanted to rest so they'd be good for the hunt the next day. You know, so I just think it's, it's just how hard you push your body. Your body adapts. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your trash collection project. Okay. Because I do the same thing too. I pick up, you know, just pick up one thing. Yeah, I used to every run. Pick up, you know, if you see some trash here and there. But this goes back to Coach Wooden. One time we were uh, on one of his walks, and we had the same route each day. I went on a walk with him a couple times. We walked past this piece of litter that I hadn't even noticed it, but he stopped and turned around and went back and picked it up. So I felt kind of guilty that I hadn't seen it, and he picked it up. It just set that example of, you know, this was his route. He wanted to take care of it. Near my house, about half a mile away, there's this one-mile stretch that I use on many of my different loops. So um, one year, I actually made it so I used it every single day on my loop, either coming or going, usually on my way home, just because that way I wouldn't have to carry the trash so far. But I cleaned up this one-mile stretch of everything from uh, 
I like to say I, I picked up everything but the kitchen sink, and I actually did get a, a bathroom sink out there because it's, it's like kind of like along an orchard, this berm on the street. I yeah. picked up all kinds of stuff, but it was just pretty cool. And it, it also became just a never-ending problem because you know, I never got it completely clean. Someone, something else would always show up there, you know, but it kind of gives you a sense of pride, and it's kind of fun. And I think a lot of runners, when, like you said you do, when you're out there, we all kind of pick up one or two things, I think, when we're out running. It, it just makes you feel good. Yeah, and I know exactly what you mean, the karma when you find the you find a bag. Yeah. So then you can fill the bag with cans. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh the biggest thing I've ever gotten is uh we came out one Sunday morning before the ten K that I manage and uh we found a queen size bed and box spring on the course. Wow. That we that wasn't there. <laughs> We had, it showed up morning of the race. Yeah, that we had to drag it out of the woods. I ended up just moving it like about 50 yards each day a little closer because I didn't want to just kill myself carrying this whole thing, you know, a mile. So I, little by little, I moved that one home. <laughs> That's great stuff. It's a good metaphor. You know, you can do the same thing in your life. You know, people listening to this, if you think like, for example, my daughter had a project she did last year where she had a jar and she wrote down one good thing on a piece of paper every day and put it in the jar. Uh-huh. And then at the end of the year, you just read those things when you need to, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, or if you're just going out and run, pick up, you know, pick up one pebble and start a pile and see how big it gets, you know, by the end of the year, right? Yeah, exactly. So any, anything like that really illustrates the, the underlying concept here, which is a bunch of little actions consistently applied will get you to where you need to be, can create big things, well, right? Like a- Again, go... Going back to coach. Yeah, and I once did a column with, with Chichi Rodriguez, a great great golfer. And he talked about he grew up uh, in, poor in, in Venezuela, I believe it was. No, it was Puerto Rico. They had a bamboo field, and, and they, wanted to, they wanted to have corn, but the dad didn't have time to clear the field to grow corn. Every day after he came home from, one, from labor, he, he would cut down one or two bamboo sticks with his machete. And then Chichi the, tells this long story, but the thing is he goes, Two years later, we had the most delicious corn for dinner. You know, it just shows that they, stock by stock, he's able to clear this field that he didn't have time to clear, but he did a little at a time and it added up. Right. And it starts to get a momentum of its own. Yeah. Uh, so whether it's cleaning your house or losing weight or whatever it is you're working on, don't think about the finish line. Think about what's the one small thing I can do today that's that's pointed towards that belief or that goal. Yeah, and also reminds me because I, I saw your recent blog about your New Year's resolutions, and, and you had this great line, it, it's about the journey. And that is so true. So one of coaches, Coach Wooden's favorite sayings was just, the, the journey is better than the end. And he just felt like so often we're so worried about getting to the finish line of what, whatever we're doing, whether it's the finish line of a marathon or finish line of a work project, or I can't wait until I get the promotion. And the thing is, you know, if you're just looking at the end, you're not going to enjoy everything along the way. Because I think marathons are wonderful, and it's a great feeling when you get to the finish line. But man, just the training and the camaraderie and, and the satisfaction of getting up each day and running, just the journey itself is what you really need to enjoy, because that's a lot more enjoyment than just one race day. Right. I'm with you 100%. And over the long term, you're, you know, it's going to be a whole series of events. One of the things I we were talking before that I saw another thing that runs through all these stories is you're an Indiana guy. Coach was a Midwest guy. And when I read his, you know, his sayings and I read, you know, some of your writing, I see this sort of Midwestern sensibility in there. Right. Sort of, I think, uh, you know, Willa Cather or uh, Winesburg, Ohio or 
Sinclair Lewis, that sort of sensibility, you know, because I, I love to read. And, you know, wh- why is this so important? Why is it so effective? And especially for you, because you're living outside of L.A., which is the most hedonistic place in the world. I was out there last week and everyone is rich and beautiful. I guess my question is, what do you think is, is there about this Midwestern sensibility that that allows us to to get better or, you know, influence the world this way in sort of a humble and understated way. I took it for granted. I never really realized it until, you know, you get into adulthood that, boy, growing up in the Midwest, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, just outside there. It it is a different mindset and just a different set of values, like you said. I mean, a lot of people think Coach Wooden's sayings and such are like so hokey and and old-fashioned, but they really are timeless, you know, like – um be quick, but don't hurry. You can't live a perfect day without helping someone else. I mean, he just preached that one. And I think when you're in the Midwest, like people, they may not even know that saying, but they live perfect days by helping other people day in and day out. It's just this Hoosierism, like you said, or it's, it's set of values. So I think it's kind of funny. I think when I meet people out here as adults, so many times you can guess who came from the Midwest just by the way they treat, not not an accent, but the way they act and treat people. And uh, not that there's not great people out West, you know, or in New York City, whatever, but just it's it's so much more common, common in the Midwest, I believe. Yeah. What's next for you? When's this book hit the uh, hit the street? This, this book's been out for about two months. It's doing really well. Um, people can get it at, at Amazon.com, of course. Or if you want an autographed copy, go to WoodyWoodburn.com. And it's W-O-O-D-Y. W-O-O-D-B-U-R-N dot com. Like Coach said, make friendship a masterpiece and buy one for another friend, friend too, okay? So, Woody, do you ever uh, think on the parallel and all the all the woods here and all these names? Actually, I, uh, not really. Like, after it came out, somebody says, you know, you should have called it Woody and Wooden. And I said, well, first of all, it would have been Wooden and Woody for sure. But uh, uh, it's just, just a coincidence, I guess, huh? Yeah, I guess so. So what uh what are what are the top three things you learned from this experience with the uh, coach if you can boil it down for people? Wow, um, just one one of the main things about him is he is so he was just so hundred percent authentic. I mean, people say like how could you how could weren't you so so nervous to meet him and try to have a friendship with him and whatever? And I go well yeah I was, I was nervous to call him that first time, but he just made it just so easy, so welcoming. He was just like a Midwestern, like you said, he just made me feel like I was an old friend to begin with. And, you know, every time I'd call him, the first thing he would do is, you know, say, hello, Woody. But then he'd go like, how are the little ones? That's what he always called my kids. And and really, the, one of the greatest gifts he gave me was that he spent time with my kids and he sent them letters and, and that they grew up, even though they're from, they were born and raised in California, they kind of grew up as Midwesterners because they grew up on Coach Wooden Sains and just... Treat, he was like the golden rule in life. That's maybe the best thing he taught me is just treat others how you would like to be treated. And, you know, I don't think you'll go wrong. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you. What, uh, we'll, we'll put the links to, uh, the book and all this stuff. Okay. Um, in the show notes so people can find it. Hey, maybe even I some of my, love your, maybe even your podcast all the time. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll even include some of my obscure literary references I just rattled off. Yeah. All right. Thanks. It was so great much, talking Chris. to you. Yeah, have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. (laughs) 
Okay, my friends, let's talk about packing for an away game, for an away race. You have to travel to a marathon. What do you bring with you for a race in another place? Now, I have been running a lot of races recently that I have had to travel for. What do you need to think about when packing for a travel race? It's a bit different. I travel for a living, and in some ways that makes it easier for me, and in other ways harder. I have my travel kit and my travel habits, and I don't have to think about it. I know how to get to and navigate airports efficiently. I know all about hotel rooms and rental cars. I have my standard travel kit of toiletries, technology, and reading material. I'm self-sufficient on the road and use my time proactively to get things done. But that's all business travel. When I'm confronted with a travel race... I have to think differently. I have to blend in an element of leisure travel that puts me out of my habit zone. It means I have to think about packing instead of just following my standard routine. And sometimes I end up having a business trip combined with a race, and that means I have to pack in consideration of both events, which is really strange. So what do you pack? First, remember that you get one carry-on bag and one personal item on that plane. This means that one of these bags has to fit under the seat in front of you, and the other one has to fit in the overhead. Why do you care? Well, first, because you don't want to check a bag. The airline will lose it or break it. The probability of them breaking it or losing it is directly proportional to how critically you need it to arrive at the destination in one piece and on time. Second, you don't want to be just another a-hole, clueless tourist dragging your life's accumulated, odd-shaped belongings onto the plane and trying to stuff them into the overhead. You don't want to drag all that stuff around with you. If you're not a frequent flyer, you won't get on the plane until the overheads are already full. So you need to pack small and flexible for all situations. For me, my personal item is always my laptop bag with my computer, my books, my work, some headphones, some snacks, some ibuprofen, some gum, etc. Basically, my laptop bag is the equivalent of a lady's handbag. It fits under the seat in front of me, and I always have it with me, slung over my shoulder. My second bag is a small duffel bag. That's right, I don't carry the ubiquitous black rollerboard bag. I find that those are too big to fit in many overheads, and when the plane starts running out of space... They take up too much room. The manufacturers cheat on the dimensions of these bags so that when you actually pack them, they don't fit anymore, especially if you use the expansion pockets. My small duffel always fits. It has a main compartment and two zippered pouches on the ends, and it has a side pocket as well. And when I buy the bags, I pull that factory-supplied stiffener out that goes in the bottom, and I use my running shoes to provide the bones of the bag. These little bags are flexible enough to fit and squish into any overhead on any plane, and if you pack them correctly, your stuff won't get wrinkled. In the main pouch, I put my running shoes on the bottom. Again, they provide the bones in a plastic bag so they don't stink everything up, and I layer my undergarments and socks on top of those for stability, right? And then on top of this platform, I lay my folded shirts and pants and ties, And in one end pouch, I put my toiletries and my shaving kit for easy access when going through security. In the other end pouch, I put my running kit, which is usually just tech shorts and a shirt that roll up quite small. Maybe you think you can't possibly pack everything you need in a bag that small. And I would tell you that you can. And furthermore, it will force you to make the necessary triage decisions to pack effectively.
You don't need all that crap. And in the end, you'll be sorry you brought it. If I'm traveling for business, I'll be wearing my dress shoes and a suit coat. And that's it. That's all I travel with. I can go five days with my duffel and the clothes on my back without wearing anything, any of the same clothes twice, except maybe my running stuff. So here are some tips how to prepare for a trip so you don't forget stuff. So tip one, visualize your checklist. One of my travel habits when packing is to start from the bottom and work up. Picture your shoes, your socks, your pants, your undergarments, your shirts, your ties, your coat, bottom up. This will give you a logical way to sequence and visualize what you need to wear so you don't forget anything. And tip two, lay it all out so you can see it and touch it before you pack when you go through your visual checklist. Otherwise, your brain might misremember having packed those socks. Tip three, business travel or not, pre-pack all your stuff the day before the trip. You're guaranteed to forget something if you try to throw it all together the morning of. You don't have to physically pack things that will wrinkle, but sort them out into a pile on the clothes pole, grouped or pre-staged, so you can pack them without thinking. Tip four, pre-stage your travel clothes, too, the stuff you're going to wear. I stage the stuff I'm going to wear for the day of travel as well. I'll put my shoes on the floor with a pair of socks in one of them and a pair of undies in the other, and I'll have a hanger with my pants, shirt, tie, belt, and coat on it. And again, you don't want to have to think about it as you're stepping out of the shower and running to the airport. Make it a grab-and-go situation. Tip five, do you really need a winter coat and a pair of boots? You know, unless I'm going to Montreal in February, I'm not packing a big, bulky winter stuff. It takes up too much room. And you just don't spend that much time outside on most trips. I can get by with a fuzzy hat that covers the ears and a pair of gloves and a scarf. You're not going to die of exposure walking from the terminal to the taxi. But what about packing for a race? Well, use those same tips above with your race stuff. Think about your race clothes first, bottom up. You're going to need shoes. If you're traveling to a race, you probably can't carry more than one pair of shoes, so make that call while you're packing. For all your worrying, it won't make that big a difference if you have to navigate a trail section in your road shoes or whatever. Socks. Pack that one pair of high-quality tech racing socks that you love. Ball them up and stick them in one of your shoes. Calf sleeves. Do you wear them? If so, ball them up and stick them in the other shoe. Underwear. Grab your favorite tech undies. Pants, tights, shorts, make a choice, pick one. If you can't quite decide between shorts and tights, pick one of both. Shirts, I usually race in a racing singlet, but you can pick up to three shirts if the weather is questionable. You know, a singlet, a short sleeve, and a long sleeve. If things get dicey, you can always layer them. Gloves, definitely pack gloves. Most races will be colder at the start, and instead of overdressing, you can wear gloves. And then you can either discard them as it warms up or tuck them into your shorts or your, your pocket. Arm sleeves. I don't use arm sleeves, but you might. And for arm sleeves, remember, you can always cannibalize a tech shirt and make some throwaway arm, arm warners. Hats. This is another place you can pick a couple of flavors. One standard tech racing hat and another fuzzy hat in case it's cold. Coats, rain jackets, outerwear. Well, sorry, guys. Unless it's a winter race... I'm not wasting bag space on extra outerwear. I might toss in a throwaway sweatshirt, but you never need them unless there's a bizarre weather event. And if there is, you'll hear about it. You'll see it coming. 
Next pack your accessories from the bottom up. Band-aids, blister pads, inserts, orthotics, ankle braces, wraps, tape. Pack any of these things that you used on your last long run on your feet. Uh, any kind of leg braces or knee braces, if you wear one of those straps, pack it. Belts, packs, vests, whatever the current hydration system you're using that you used on your last long run, make sure all the bottles are empty and clean. Remember, no fluids can go through security. Reflective stuff, again, only if it's a night race, like a relay, then you want all your clothes to be reflective. Include one of those cheap orange reflective vests. Sunglasses, I usually bring a pair that I'm going to race with, and I stick those in my laptop bag. A small throwaway towel. Towels are cheap. Get a small one. I use one that's maybe, you know, a foot by three feet. It rolls up, and it sticks into my race kit. And remember, the hitchhiker always needed his towel, so trust me on this. And the next thing you want to pack is your technology. Again, bottom up, sports watch. Put everything that needs to be charged on a charger the night before. Bring all the cables and plugs and cords that you need. I charge everything off the USB port in my laptop to minimize the number of power supplies that I have to carry. If you have a foot pod, I don't use one, but if you have a foot pod, bring that. Your heart strap, your armband, or whatever you use to hold your tunes. I typically don't race with music, but you may. And you may want to pack an extra pair of headphones if this is important to you. Get your playlist sorted out and queued up ahead of time. Flashlights, headlights, again, only if it's a nighttime race. Then think about your nutrition and your other goop. Remember two things. First, no liquids are allowed through security. And second, only three-ounce containers or less. This may mean that you have to procure some smaller containers to transfer some of your goop into so you can fit it in with your toiletries. And most of the stuff is available at the race venue anyhow, but not always. So lube. I procure a small half-ounce containers, tubes of lube, at the sample place at the drugstore, and those will fit into the key pocket of my shorts, and this way I can carry it with me in the race if I get chafing problems. Gels. Pack what you need. I've never been stopped in security for carrying gels. Powdered nutrition. If you need that special stuff that you've been training with, load up a small container with the powder version so you can mix it into your bottles when you get to the race venue. Pre-measure it. For example, if you have a four-bottle belt and each bottle takes one scoop, put four scoops in a baggie or another container. Tape. I use your standard cloth hockey tape, not the shiny medical stuff. Tape is very versatile. Throw a couple of rolls of tape in your kit. You can stabilize an ankle or a knee with it. You can fix blisters with it. You can fix equipment with it. And you can seal a cheap race check bag with it. Plastic bags for wet laundry. You don't want to have to put that stinky race stuff back into your duffel without appropriate isolation mitigation. You can also use these to organize all your little things so they don't get mixed up in your race bag. Giant plastic trash bag. Like the humble hockey tape, the giant plastic trash bag is a jack-of-all-trades. You can use it as protection against the elements at the start. You can use it as a tarp to sit on. You can use it as a seat cover in your rental car. Take one 55-gallon trash bag roll it up tight into a little tube and put a rubber band around it, and there you have it. So in summary, there are an infinite number of other things that you can bring, but that's typically what I bring. Of course, 
remember, you have to print out your bib number for pickup and all that information and maybe even throw some extra safety pins in your bag. You can't bring everything. Most stuff can be done without or procured on site. You have to be flexible. If you've forgotten something, chances are someone else will have some if you ask around. Don't freak out. All you really need to race is your body and your mind. Everything else is optional. And sometimes my mind is optional as well. I'll close with a story. One Boston Marathon, I was in a hurry, and I left my handful of carefully selected hammer gels in my race check bag. And I found myself walking to the to the corral in an oh-shit attitude, wondering what to do. While looking around on the sidewalk and the ground, I found that people who had brought too many gels were leaving them, and I was able to collect four or five miscellaneous gels on my way to the start. Optimal? No. But all part of the adventure. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Okay, my cold and shivering friends, just think only three months until the Boston Marathon and swimsuit season shortly after that. It's going to get busy now as we work our way through the late winter into spring and then into the Boston Marathon and beyond to the Groton Road Race. Yes, the Groton Road Race is a race, or more exactly, a series of races in my hometown of Groton, Massachusetts that we've scheduled for April 27th. 2014 this year. Mark your diaries. I've got all the sponsors locked and the insurance done and the awesome team that works on this is way ahead of the curve. And we're going to be featured in April's Runner's World, supposedly, and that's pretty cool. If I get through Waco, (laughs) I'm scheduled to run New Orleans the following weekend with Eric. I'll take it as it comes. It, It looks like I'm going to be on another trip to Europe right after that. You know, it's crazy. I also managed to sign up for a fairly popular and famous trail marathon for my March race. So now all I have to do is stay upright. I have to admit that these short, dark, cold days of winter, you know, I feel a bit sick of it all and kind of want to hide my head under the under the covers and the pillows instead of taking my lance to the daily windmills. And that's why I need you good folks to give me strength. Yes, it will get crazy. Yes, there will be stress. Yes, there will be births and there will be deaths. Beginnings, middles, and ends. But we will get through it with the support of our families and our friends. We'll keep our heads and we'll go forward with honest intent. We will be captains of our own ships, confident amidst the crashing waves of the world. Because we are leaders and endurance athletes. And we are strong. And we will make each day our masterpiece, and I'll see you out there. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm CYKT 
Russell. And as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao.